Oh, welcome to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us today, this Wednesday afternoon, or when you, whenever you might be listening to this program. You know, when asked about their religious affiliation, three out of ten Americans today identify as none or none of the above, to say they have no religious affiliation at all. And in the midst of this cultural shift, churches are emptying and have been for decades, and that's Catholic and Protestant. And of course, those churchgoers who remain in the pews, I expect, um, reasonably expect that their shepherds would welcome growth in their communities and uh, would encourage more prayer rather than less. So the question becomes, why would the Pope choose this precise moment in history to renew the persecution of the one sector of the Catholic Church which is flourishing rather than declining, that is to say, the uh, Catholics who assisted the traditional Latin Mass. In other words, why not let Catholics pray like Catholics? We're going to answer that question later on in today's program. I'm also going to talk a little bit more about the devotion to Our Lady of America in... um, light of our current situation. But this last week was uh, saw the 6th of January come, and uh, those of you that attend the Novus Ordo me say you would have celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany um, a week ago Sunday, but uh, the feast was, you know, actually on, on the 6th of January. It's the traditional feast. And I don't know, I mean, I want to talk about that today, probably going to take a couple of segments to talk about it, because and I don't know if you, uh, a lot of Catholics don't realize that uh, on the Epiphany, the Church actually celebrates a threefold mystery, which is, of course, the arrival in, uh, uh, of the wise men right, in Bethlehem who come to adore the newborn Savior, and, but also the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan and the first miracle of Jesus, which is the wedding at Cana. See, these are all times that our Lord manifested his divinity in a public way. You know, it's, the Epiphany means manifestation, and, uh, you know, so, and this is Jesus uh, showing himself to be the promised Messiah and the beloved of the Heavenly Father and the Redeemer of the world, uh, respectively. And not only to the Jews, to the chosen people, but also to the Gentiles, uh, of which the wise men are the great exemplars. So the introit, um, you know, the opening line of the uh, Mass of the Epiphany is taken from the prophet uh, Malachias uh, 3 uh, verse 1, Behold, the Lord, the ruler is come, and a kingdom in his hand, and power and dominion. And then from Psalm 71 verse 2, Give to the king thy judgment, O God, and to the king's son thy justice. So we're putting that, you know, it it sets the tone for this entire liturgy that Christ is the promised redeemer, but he is the newborn king, right? Where they look to find Where is going to be born the king of the Jews? And the epistle is taken from Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6, and it begins uh, with the words, Arise, be enlightened, enlightened, O Jerusalem, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee, etc. Now, the prophet foretells the future manifestation of the light of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem, right? This is what Isaiah is prophesying. And that's a type of the church, And it is by that light that the Gentiles would also enter into the salvation that was promised to the Jews, to the chosen people. And then the Holy Gospel is the adoration of the Magi, and it's taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'm reading, uh, as has become the custom here, 
Uh, our translation is the New Catholic Bible. After Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod, wise men traveled from the east and arrived in Jerusalem inquiring, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw the rising of his star, and we have come to pay him homage. On hearing about their inquiry, King Herod was greatly troubled, as was true of the whole of Jerusalem. Therefore he summoned all the chief priests and the scribes and questioned them about where the Christ was to be born. They replied, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus has the prophet written, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, and he ascertained from them the exact time of the star's appearance, after which he sent them on to Bethlehem, saying, Go forth and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word, so that I can go and pay him homage. After receiving these instructions from the king, the wise men set out, and behold, the star that they had seen at its rising proceeded ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. The sight of the star filled them with great joy, and when they entered the house, they beheld the child with Mary his mother. Falling to their knees, they paid him homage. Then they opened their treasure chests and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And since they had been warned in a, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another route. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> so the wise men were especially learned in the science of the stars, which would have been astrology in their days. And according to tradition, the wise men were uh, of high rank, and that's why they're often called three kings. Also, there's in the Psalms, it talks about how the kings will come and pay him homage. They come from the east, right, which is the uh, land where the sun rises. Uh, they assume that they came from Babylon or uh, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, because the word magi is a Persian word. And, and, of course, this was many centuries before Muhammad invented the Muslim religion. And in that part of the world, they, they still had preserved the memory of the prophecy of Balaam from the Old Testament, that one day a star would arise in Judea, and that then the, the Redeemer, the heavenly king, would appear. And that belief in a future Savior had been rekindled in Babylon, in Persia, by the prophet Daniel, who was one of the wise men of his day. Okay, so they remembered from, from uh, the days of Daniel. And then the star that they saw rising in the, in the west, therefore in the direction of Judea, was no ordinary star, for it says it went before them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and stopped over the house where the child Jesus dwelt. Now, there's been many um, various attempts at a scientific explanation for the star of Bethlehem over the years, uh, including the uh, phenomenon of planetary alignment, which we actually saw uh, around Epiphany last year. <clears throat> but in any case, you know, it, it was the, uh, or I guess two Januaries ago, right? So it must have been 2020. Um, in any case, it was, it was an appearance of light in the form of a star uh, of, of some extraordinary description, right? This the biblical account. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle, as you know, wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, a star appeared in the heavens which eclipsed all the other stars. Its light was indescribable, and its novelty caused astonishment. So the wise men, these, these holy kings who were full of faith and were waiting for the promised Savior, recognized that star. 
And they, and by divine inspiration, they recognized it to be the sign that was to be the herald of the birth of Christ. And so they came to adore him. But the star only directed the, uh, the wise men generally towards Judea and then temporarily vanished. But, you know, they were so firmly convinced that the Messiah was born, they never thought of inquiring if he was born, but where. And so they, uh, you know, it tells you something about their faith. They hoped to be able to learn the location of his birth um, at the capital of Judea, so they went straight to Jerusalem. And the appearance of these strangers with their train, you know, with all their servants and their camels and all that, naturally caused a sensation in Jerusalem, especially when they said, you know, they came there with the assertion that the Messiah had already been born. And it says in the scripture that Herod was troubled, and that was true of all Jerusalem. You know, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod was hated for his cruelty, and he was afraid, of course, that if the Messiah had really come, if the, you know, there's the king of the Jews, then the Jews were going to dethrone him. And then the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for their part, you know, they said to themselves, how is it that the Christ is born and we don't know anything about it? You know, how, how did this happen without our knowledge? And why has God revealed it to these, these strangers, these Gentiles, and not to us? What does that mean? And then when they found out the king was troubled, they were afraid that, that the persecutions of King Herod towards them would get worse. So, you know, here it is, the good news, and it's only these three Gentiles that are happy about it. All right, Herod assembled the chief priests, namely the, and, and priests, plural, you know, uh, because you had the current high priest and those who had formerly held the office. Because again, during the reign of King Herod, uh, in violation of the Old Testament law, the, the high priest was often deposed by the temporal authority, and so consequently there were several high priests at once, right? The actual one and the, those who had formerly held the office. And then he also called for the scribes and asked them where the Christ should be born. And since there, there hadn't been any prophets for centuries, so the scribes, you know, not until John the Baptist ar arrived on the scene, so the scribes were the official expounders and interpreters of Holy Scripture. These are the doctors of the law. So the wise men uh, had inquired about the newborn king of the Jews, and Herod obviously understood who they meant, right, because he asked the chief priest where Christ was to be born. And, you know, Herod was more pagan than Jew, uh, and he wasn't that well acquainted with the prophecies of the Messiah, so he had to, you know, go for the expert opinion about where he'd be born. And the answer that they gave was according to the prophet Micah, or Micaeus. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you notice that Herod called for these doctors of the law to come secretly, because he'd already you know, formed his murderous plan to, to, to slaughter the children. And he did not want that to be known. He didn't want it to be abroad. And he feared that the Jews would would, you know, uh, hide the child, put him in some place of safety if they found out how interested he was in, in his location. So we're going to talk more about this and about some of the implications of the Feast of the Epiphany when we return. Also, why won't they just let Catholics pray like Catholics? We're going to talk about all that and much more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholics right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
Okay, welcome back. Talking about how the wise men visited Herod on their way to, you know, to discover the location of the Christ child so they could go and pay him homage. And Herod asked them about the exact time that the star appeared to them because he, you know, uh, judged correctly that uh, it must have appeared, you know, to announce Christ's birth. Now, it takes time to, you know, get to Bethlehem from Persia overland via camel. So I don't know exactly how long it took them if the star appeared um, before he was born so that they could arrive shortly after his birth or what exactly the, uh, the situation was. We know that the Holy Family was still in Bethlehem when they arrived. But the point is, Herod wants to, to figure out how old the child is. So he asked those questions, and it was on, on that that he determined he would kill all of the male children two years old and younger because he figured that that was the window. You know, and the Magi, they don't know any better. They don't uh, know that he doesn't really want to adore the child because they didn't know him. Certainly no Jew would have trusted him. Uh, but um, they went off to Bethlehem, and the star appears again. And uh, it says, The star that they had seen at its rising proceeded ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Or in some translations, it says the house. You know, and that's the thing. Even though... The, uh, the wise men are familiar figures in the nativity scene. Uh, they weren't at the, uh, you know, they didn't come until later. They weren't at the stable in Bethlehem. You know, according to tradition, as soon as all the people who had flocked to Bethlehem for the uh, census, when they left, you know, obviously um, Joseph and Mary found better accommodations. And so that's where the wise men came to adore the child. And we can only imagine how happy they were when they arrived finally um, at the, the end of this long journey. And they adored the child, it says. They adored him. They worshipped him. Because through an inspiration of divine grace, they recognized the child as the Son of God. Scripture says they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, you know, anything that we give to God, of course, is called an offering. And so they offered these gifts. And then I'll talk about them in a a minute. The angel then, of course, warns them not to return to Herod because they didn't want Herod to discover the whereabouts of the child. Uh, And presumably, so they either crossed the Jordan at uh, Jericho or else went all the way around the Dead Sea to avoid passing through Jerusalem on their way home. Now, what does this teach us? What do we learn from the Epiphany? Well, first off, you know, of course, the omniscience of God, he, he knows the exact thoughts of both Herod and the wise men. He knew that the wise men in their sincerity would show the place where the child, Herod, the place where he lived, and he knew that Herod would resolve in the death of the child. And that's why, you know, through the angel, he tells the wise men to come home by a different route. Also, we see the faithfulness of God, right? This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah or Micaeus. And, and you know, it's this wonderful chain of circumstances that results in the Redeemer being born at Bethlehem, including, you know, the proclamation from the Roman emperor and all that stuff just fell into place. Um, Jesus Christ is God, and he's the Redeemer of all mankind, so Jews as well as Gentiles. And he proved himself uh, as such by revealing uh, himself after his birth, first to the shepherds who were Jews by means of the angel, and then to the, the, the magi who were Gentiles by means of the star. And he manifested himself as God and the Lord of hosts, right? The angels and the stars. And then, you know, it's hard not to admire the the faith of the Magi. You know, they believed in the prophecy. 
from which they knew that the Redeemer would appear in Judea, that uh, his coming would be heralded by a star. And so as soon as they perceived that this was the star, the prophesied star, they set right off, you know, full of this desire to worship the Savior. And, you know, and they didn't uh, shrink from the dangers of this long journey. And they weren't discouraged when the star disappeared either, but traveled on further to seek information at Jerusalem. So, and, and, you know, their faith was tried there because nobody in Jerusalem knew anything about the Redeemer's birth. You know, it, it was they who brought the tidings that the, the Christ was born. And it didn't awaken feelings of joy, but feelings of, 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 you know, people were troubled. And that might easily have aroused, you know, doubts in them as to whether this sign from heaven was really real. Maybe they'd been deceived. But they didn't give place to that. They stayed firm. Their faith wasn't shaken by the opinion or the actions of others. They believed in the prophecy and their interpretation given by uh, the chief priests and the scribes. And while it was still night, it says, they set off for Bethlehem. And here's another thing. Nobody from Jerusalem accompanied them. At least the, the scripture doesn't tell us that or the tradition that they traveled alone to the city of David. And you might have thought that, you know, all Jerusalem would have flocked out to see the Messiah. But no, not even the priests who must have been either doubtful or skeptical. They, they stayed behind. They left it to these Gentile uh, kings and philosophers to discover the newborn Savior. And you got to figure that was by no means encouraging to the wise men <laughs> you know, as a reward for their faithfulness, though the star reappeared. And so they, they uh, led them to the house where the Christ child and his mother were. And here they, they behold this little child and, and his maiden mother in these very humble circumstances. So you have to figure it was divine grace that prompted them to drop to their knees and to worship this infant as God. So what St. Augustine says, would they have done this if they had not recognized him as the eternal king? And so you have this great example of, of responding to grace. You know, when our Lord was born, the angels sang, peace on earth to men of good will. And so the magi showed themselves to be men of good will. They cooperated with grace, they obtained peace, and according to the tradition of the church, they obtained salvation. Because when, you know, that, that, that grace that was made them see the star and understand its meaning. And no doubt there were other, you know, wise men in the East or around the world who understood that the star indicated the birth of the Messiah. But it was only the Magi that answered that divine invitation to come and seek him out. These three obeyed the invitation of grace, and by leaving home and friends and security, they traveled off to Judea. So by responding faithfully to that first grace, they obtained further grace, the grace of learning in Jerusalem where he was to be born. And because they believed in the prophecy and went to Bethlehem, God not only showed them the way to the child, but illuminated them interiorly so they understood the mystery of the incarnation and worshipped him gave him, you know, divine adoration. You know, so according to tradition, they so faithfully preserved the faith in the divine Savior that they were counted worthy to suffer martyrdom for their faith. And they're venerated as saints by the Catholic Church. In 1164, the Holy Roman Emperor brought their remains and their relics to the cathedral in Cologne, where they are today. And, and that should impress upon us the important doctrine that the more we cooperate with God's grace, the more grace we receive. You know, the more worthy we will be able to, to receive greater and greater graces and to be saved. 
Now, in contrast to that, in this story, of course, we have the indifference shown by the chief priests and the scribes. It's, it's almost inconceivable, right? I mean, they knew the prophecies about the Redeemer, and through the wise men, you know, they, they received this reliable testimony that the star had appeared, <clears throat> but they didn't cooperate with that grace, and they didn't stir a foot to seek out the Messiah. They consulted the scriptures. They told the, the wise men where Christ was to be found, but they themselves stayed at home and waited for the Savior to come to them. And, you know, later on when he did come to them, they still wouldn't receive him because he was poor and humble and not what they were expecting in a Messiah. And so they persecuted him instead. And that tells us something important. That tells us why pride is the first among the deadly sins. Because it was in his pride and ambition and envy that Herod resolved to kill the Savior of mankind. You know, in order to make sure that, that he would tell him the Christ location, you know, his true, where he was born, he lied to the wise men, telling them that he wanted to worship the Christ child too. So from the very beginning, the weapons wielded against the church were lies and hypocrisy. And those are the same weapons that are being wielded against the church still today. All right, so the 6th of January is the Feast of the Epiphany, and because the, the wise men were the first Gentiles to whom our Lord manifested himself as the Savior of mankind. And so they were, you know, in the scriptures, they are the representatives of the pagan world, which was also longing for the Redeemer, you know, and, and they were the ones who came and offered adoration to him. And so this is a, a special reminder, all those of us who are not of Jewish descent, okay, the Epiphany is a special time to remember to thank God for the gift of our Catholic faith. Because our, you know, even if you're a cradle Catholic, your forefathers were pagans. You know, my ancestors, all of us who are descendants of the Gentiles, and we ought to praise that infinite love of God who gave his only begotten son, not just for his chosen people, not just for those who had stayed faithful through all those centuries of, of you know, persecution and... and uh, you know, being enslaved and, and all of the trials they undertook, wandering in the desert. Not just for them, but for everyone, for the salvation of all men. So uh, uh, the gifts, so I want to talk about that quickly, because um, they're, they're significant. You know, they give him frankincense. And in Israel, you could only offer incense to God, okay? That's why the early Christians would die rather than giving incense to the emperor, right? Offering incense. So the fact that they showed, they offered the frankincense showed that they understood his divinity. And gold is the gift that you give to a king. And then myrrh is a kind of, you know, it's a resin, actually. Uh, and, and it was put on the bodies of the dead to preserve them from corruption. So the Magi then showed their uh, d desire to, to venerate the human nature of Jesus, which was destined to suffer and die and be buried for us. So they offered gold to the king and incense to the god and myrrh to the man. And, you know, we adore the Blessed Sacrament uh, the same, for the same reason that the Magi in, adored the Christ child. It's the same Son of God. You know, Christ was present there in Bethlehem and the wise men worshipped him, uh, you know, in the incarnation as a, as a child who was also, you know, a man and God. But that same Christ is present body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread in the host. And we worship that same Christ 
when we adore the Blessed Sacrament. All right, so finally, you and I, we have (laughs) received so many graces from God. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have we always responded to those graces faithfully? You know, uh, have I ever actually resisted God's grace? I know I have. Um, If you search your heart, heart, maybe you have too. The thing is, though, that St. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, we exhort you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. And we, you know, we need to cooperate with God's grace. And this is a time, this is a trying time that we live in. But God still offers us that grace. And we need to, to respond to it, even in these trying situations. And finally, um, we, we can offer our gifts to the Lord Jesus also. We make ourselves a living sacrifice. We give him the gold of love and the incense of worship and the myrrh of patience in suffering. Okay, when we come back, going to ask that question, why not just let Catholics worship like Catholics? Also, Our Lady of America and more coming up on No Nonsense Catholic right here on VMPR. Okay, welcome back to uh, round three here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The other day, I saw an article on the Fox News website, or actually I was directed to it. I do not visit the Fox News website uh, on purpose, (laughs) typically, but or any other news, uh, secular news website for that matter. But there was an article there by Father Robert Sirico, S-I-R-I-C-O, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. And it was called, Pope Francis Should Let Catholics Pray Like Catholics. And then the subheading is, Too Many Spiritual Shepherds Want to Contain Traditional Worship as If It Were Some Kind of Virus. I suspect the editorial people at Fox News added that in. But he starts with the statistic that three out of ten Americans identify themselves as none uh, in regard to their religious affiliation. Churches, Christian churches, Protestant and Catholic, are emptying. And he suggests that the remaining uh, churchgoers reasonably expect their shepherds to welcome more prayer rather than less. And this, he says, quote, is what makes Pope Francis's recent ruling to restrict prayer in the Catholic Church so odd. And that's really, I think, what caught my eye, is that he represents Traditionis Custodes and the Responsa ad Dubia uh, for what they really are. And I'll quote it again, rulings to restrict prayer in the Catholic Church. You know, uh, and that's just it's striking when you think about it. You know, I, obviously I've been talking about Traditionis Custodes and for months and the dubia since it uh, came out in December. But, you know, for that matter, I've been talking about the traditional Latin Mass for 20 years, you know, as, as, a, uh, as a Catholic who considers myself a traditional Catholic. And again, my definition of traditional Catholic is not that you exclusively attend the, uh, you know, the old Latin Mass, but simply that you embrace all the teachings of the Catholic Church, that you can say the act of faith and really mean it, okay? And, and, but I think that this story, the fact that this story has made it to a prominent secular website um, is, is, is really what struck me, you know, because it's a man bites dog story. Prope restricts Catholic prayer. It sounds 
crazy. You know, who could imagine a pope who wants to restrict prayer, especially prayer in Latin, right? It's like science fiction. But this is precisely where the hermeneutic of rupture has taken us, to a time in history where the pope in Rome is attacking Catholics for wanting to pray and assist at the the Mass which has given the Church countless saints, and for which many saints gave their lives. You know, talking about the Pope's rather insulting remarks towards traditional Catholics, uh, Father Sirico says that uh, sometimes stereotypes can be shortcuts to the truth, but, he says, certainly not in this case. In my experience, it is not just the elderly who like the smells and bells of the Church's old rituals. A great many young people love traditional worship. I joke that at my old parish's Latin Mass is the Teen Mass. And that's true. I mean, so many of people that are coming to uh, embrace the Church's traditional forms of worship and traditional catechesis and all the rest of that are people that have no dog in the fight, many of whom were born long after Vatican II was over. Decades after the uh, the Novus Ordo had become the norm in in you know parishes around the world, but uh, he goes on. Father says that apparently the Who am I to judge Pope has no problem judging faithful Catholics who pray in ways that he simply doesn't like. And he points out in 2014, Pope Francis told bishops that he cannot understand the younger generation who flocked to the old mass. A couple of years later, he wondered in an interview why so many young Catholics prefer the Latin Mass and condemned them as rigid. Why so much rigidity, he asked. This rigidity always hides something, insecurity, or even something else. And in 2019, he ridiculed young priests who wear cassocks uh, and say that they must have moral problems and imbalances, that this is a sign that there's something very wrong here. And, you know, of course... Uh, Father Sirico says that uh, Traditions Custodes marks a disappointing departure from John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And it is, quote, a peculiar use of the papacy, as if the pontiff were leading a new presidential administration that reverses executive orders of prior presidents from different political parties. I made that point precisely on our first uh, fireside chat uh, in December of 2021. By the way, we're going to be, for those of you who are monthly donors at the $25 and higher level, uh, we are recording the January fireside chat later today. Okay. And we'll get it up, posted up for you as soon as possible. I know the holidays have us a little behind schedule, but we have uh, committed to doing every month. We're going to have some of the hosts get together and just have an informal chat about what's going on in the church and, and, uh, you know, in the apostolate. And it's just for, you know, it's exclusive to the, uh, our monthly donors at the $25 a month and more level. So uh, this month it's going to be me and Terry, and we'll be joined by Mr. Gary Machuda, talking about lots of interesting stuff. So uh, keep that in mind. If you're a monthly donor, uh, it's coming quick. You know, if you're not at that level or if you're not a monthly donor, maybe, uh, maybe consider it. Anyway, Benedict Sixteenth taught that... Um, Quote, I'm quoting from him, the power of teaching in the church involves a commitment to the service of obedience to the faith. The Pope's not an absolute monarch whose thoughts and desires are law. On the contrary, the Pope's ministry is a guarantee of obedience to Christ and to his word. He must not proclaim his own ideas, 
but rather constantly bind himself and the church to obedience to God's word in the face of every attempt to adapt it or water it down and every form of opportunism. See, that's why treating the papacy like a political administration is such a poor idea. It, it's, the, it's the Pope's job to hand on what he has received, okay? Not to remake the church uh, in his own image or to his own liking. And what Benedict, you know, consider what he said, uh, Benedict XVI, about the traditional Mass. What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and cannot all of a sudden be entirely forbidden or considered harmful. You know, when he wrote those words, there were less than 200 uh, places in the United States where they were celebrating the traditional Latin Mass under the indult of John Paul II. 14 years, it's more than tripled. There are over 650 places uh, around the country that offer the traditional Latin Mass. There's a traditional Latin Mass in every state, including Washington, D.C. There's a traditional Latin Mass in every diocese. Okay? The point that Father uh, Sirico makes is that, you know, uh, popes aren't presidents. Papacy is not supposed to be about politics, about meeting the spiritual needs of the faithful. And clearly, that explosion... Uh, of growth in the traditional community, you know, what, what part of the church, you know, in any has tripled in the last uh, 14 years rather than declined? Okay, I'll wait. Okay, there it is. Uh, you know, the most remarkable growth in the church has come from parishes that celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass, either exclusively or in conjunction with the ordinary form which is the situation in most of those parishes. Um, and so he says, unfortunately, quote, too many shepherds now want to contain that contagious growth as if, as if it were some kind of virus. But perhaps what the church and our world needs most now is a pandemic of prayer. And I can tell you what uh, a growing number of Catholics want is to pray like Catholics. They don't want to pray in some new way. They don't want to approach the faith in some new way. They want to approach the faith in a faithful way. And they wanted their shepherds to do the same. According to Reuters, um, on the Feast of the Epiphany, Pope Francis directed specific criticism once again at those who balked at his decision to restrict the traditional Latin Mass. He says, liturgy should not be trapped in a dead language. Right? And he took a further swipe at Catholics uh, resisting change in the church. That's their uh, Reuters language. Calling their religion self-referential and encased in a suit of armor. He asked the question, and here's a quote from the Pope, have we been stuck all too long, nestled inside a conventional, external, and formal religiosity that no longer warms our hearts and changes our lives? You know, and, <laughs> and this is the thing. Charles Coulomb uh, replied on Facebook. He said, yes, you have, Holy Father. That's why younger Catholics prefer the Catholicism of all ages as opposed to that of 1969. <laughs> Good call. You know, and that exposes uh, another problem. Catholics, you know, these older Catholics specifically are stuck in the 60s and 70s. You know, it, it's a popular mantra amongst progressive Catholics, including some in the Roman Curia, that these, these post-conciliar changes in the church, especially the Novus Ordo, are quote-unquote irreformable. Some have, have gone so far as to say that the Magisterium of Francis is irreformable. And that's nonsense on its face, as is the, the, the charge that 
we need to abandon the traditional mass because the, the church is, is stuck in this conventional external formal religiosity. The majority of Catholics in the world have never been to a traditional mass. If they're stuck in anything, it's they're stuck in this, in this uh, time warp of where, where it's 1970 forever. I remember, this is, this is going to be a weird digression, but here it is. Growing up, you know, through my uh, teens, junior high, high school, and as a young adult, I, uh, I wore Western wear, typically. Jeans and boots, uh, you know, button-down shirts, or button-up shirts, whatever you call it, you know, Western shirts. Even a hat, occasionally. And, um, you know, it was just, it was my thing. And I'm living in Southern California, living in greater L.A. That's not... Uh, it wasn't a, a particular popular look. It was a personal choice. You know, I'd even wear like a bolo tie if I had to put on a suit, that kind of thing. And then in the early 80s, you know, I was in a band uh, at the time, making my living that way. And the whole urban cowboy thing happened. And all of a sudden, everybody and his brother is all done up in their cowboy duds. And it struck me that, you know, that craze would be over. And then I would still be wearing my Western wear. And there would be people, and of course, this is, you know, it's the pride thing. And this is long before I was Catholic. It, it, it you know, uh, it bothered me to think that there would be people who say, oh, look at that guy in his cowboy clothes. He's passe. When in fact, I'm not passe at all. I'm just doing what I have always done. Okay. And there's something to that. All right. We're going to come back with uh, more on this in just a few moments. I have digressed. We'll get back on track when we return. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So, as I was saying before the break... Uh, you know, our problem is that, uh, you know, uh, so the modernists and progressives in the church are stuck in the 70s. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, using arguments, uh, making arguments that really no longer apply to the actual situation in the church. Much like the aging hippie progressive types in the, in the Democratic Party are, are back to that uh, hard left stuff that when they were signing carrying hippies in the 60s, you know. Uh, it, the, the world has moved on. You know, I got to tell Joe Biden, you can't stick it to the man anymore because you are the man and have been for, you know, the better part of my life, probably. Anyway, the, the, the other issue, though, is I think that I'm concerned that there are so many traditional Catholics, you know, Latin mass Catholics, who are also going back to the 70s. Well, we'll go back, we'll have our underground masses and we're going to have resistance and we're going we're gonna to resist the Pope and we're going to resist, you know, um, Vatican II, which of course is playing right into the hands of the people that, you know, it's like it, it's uh, perpetuating the stereotype. And I think that, you know, I mean, as much respect as I have for the people that kept the traditional mass alive, you know, in, in the early days before John Paul came along with the indult and before... Benedict XVI came along and really undermined Francis's argument entirely. He didn't give permission to the traditional mass. He said, you don't need permission for it. That was, that was Benedict's position. You, you know, it was never abrogated. You're, you're Catholic. It can't be forbidden. It can't be harmful somehow if it's this thing that has, you know, uh, nurtured the saints for centuries. That's crazy. So, you know, not only do you not need permission for it, but every uh, Catholic priest in the Latin Rite has, has a right to say it. 
um, you know, no matter what anybody thinks. Anyway, the mistake that we made is surrendering the interpretation, surrendering the narrative to the progressives after the council. And I'm going to talk about that next week. That's going to be uh, our topic for for uh, the next week or so, uh, that Vatican II not only does it need to be interpreted according to tradition, right, the hermeneutic of continuity, like Benedict said, we, traditional Catholics, we are the ones, you know, uh, that need to take ownership of these documents because we're the ones, uh, you know, I, I believe who are actually achieving the stated goals of Vatican II. What Vatican II said it wanted to do, we're the ones that are actually uh, managing that, okay? We're the ones that are doing it. And I think that we've got a, um, a generation of young priests and religious and lay people, like I say, who don't have a dog in the fight of, of the, you know, the old, you know, liturgy wars of the 1970s, but who are moving forward and that we're going to have to, like I say, we're going to have to take ownership of that ecumenical council and say, no, this is what those documents really say. This is what it needs. We need to, you know, uh, realize that the spirit of Vatican II is not the true legacy of Vatican II. And if we want to have a church in the future, then this is the way we're going to have to approach it. And I think that's not unlike what happens after a lot of councils, that maybe it's a hundred years before the dust settles. And I, I think we're at the, we're at the tipping point where things are going to turn back. That is my prayer. All right. Uh, but what do you do right now to, uh, to make things better? I mean, yeah, I can talk about what's going to happen in a couple of generations, but you and I are, are here now. Well, again, scripture reading every day. Read the mass readings. Read the, I, I, I um, pray the liturgy of the hours. And you know what? I'm a traditional Catholic, but I'm a traditional Catholic, even though I love that, the old mass. I'm a traditional Catholic in the sense that I believe you know, I, I say the act of faith and I mean it. That I can say to God, I believe everything the Catholic Church teaches because you have revealed it. Who can neither deceive nor be deceived. And, and so I don't scruple to uh, pray the Novus Ordo Liturgy of the Hours. In fact, the shorter Christian prayer, where you're praying three times a day, like, uh, like the prophet Daniel. Um, the Magnificat has uh, those prayers in it, I, I think. Um, you know, make acts of faith and hope and love and contrition, and most especially the Holy Rosary. Not only is the rosary the most recommended prayer for lay people after the, the liturgy itself, but this is um, you know, something Our Lady always tells us to pray the rosary. Because again, you don't need any special permission. You don't need any, any uh, committees. You don't need to, to go on your knees in somebody's office and beg to, to let it happen. You know, all you have to do is, is take the beads out of your pocket and pray. All right? So that's number one, prayer and scripture. The other thing um, is uh, uh, Vatican II reminded us of the universal call to holiness, right? Like, uh, like uh, St. Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, right? We need to get holy or die trying, as Jesse Rero says. And this is the message of Vatican II. This is the message of the Holy Scriptures. This is the message of uh, recently of Our Lady of America. And this is the message of our good Lord Jesus Christ. And Why? G.K. Chesterton, you may remember, wrote the shortest letter ever published in the London Times. They asked their readers to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And his response was, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he was right. I'm what's wrong with the world. 
And if I want to change the world, I start by changing myself. And if I, you know, sincerely follow and believe the admonition and the promise of our Lord, I can do that. As he says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the rest will be given to you. You know, Our Lady of uh, America, that message was approved by the Church for Private Devotion in May of 2020. And her message reminds us of that teaching of our Lord from Luke's Gospel, that the kingdom of God is within you. How so? Through the indwelling of the Most Holy Trinity in your soul through sanctifying grace. Okay? With God in your soul, if you're in a state of sanctifying grace, you have God in your soul and the kingdom of God lives in you forever because your soul is immortal. And this, this uh, kingdom can never be taken away from you. You can surrender it, but, so, but it can't be taken away so long as you remain in a state of grace. And that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Nothing is more important. All right? It's the very meaning and purpose of life to know, love, and serve God in this world and be happy with him in the next. But knowledge isn't sufficient. See, know, love, and serve. It's not sufficient, but it is the foundation for the love and the service that follow. St. Catherine of Siena said, love follows knowledge. So knowledge comes first and leads us to a love which is eager to serve. But that knowledge requires an accurate presentation of the faith. And that's the thing. You see, along with Our Lady of America, there's another approved apparition in the United States, and that's Our Lady of Good Help. Uh, Our Lady appeared to a, a Belgian woman, Adele Brise, in October of 1859. And she identified herself as the queen of heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners. And her message was simple. Teach the children what they need to know for salvation. Right? That message was delivered precisely 100 years before John XXIII convoked the Second Vatican Council. Right? In an apparition deemed worthy of belief by the Church, the Blessed Virgin Mary specifically emphasized the importance of catechesis. John Paul II reiterated that message for the whole church when he said that lay people must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hope that life poses to every person and society. Therefore, he said catechesis is for every Catholic, not just the young. So if you feel like you don't know your faith as well as you should... I encourage you right now, you want to make a New Year's resolution? Take responsibility for your own religious formation. There's never been more access to good materials on the Catholic faith than this precise moment in history. You want to live your faith, you have to learn your faith. You have to embrace your faith and not just inherit it. A hundred years after uh, Mary appeared as Our Lady of Good Help to Adele Breeze, she appeared to a humble sister, Sister Mildred Noisel, in 1959 was her final apparition. And uh, again, the same year that uh, John Twenty-Third convoked the Second Vatican Council. And her message was to imitate her purity, to imitate uh, the virtues of St. Joseph and the Holy Family. And this isn't just sexual purity or sexual chastity, which of course is really important in our day but also that purity of soul that comes from being in a state of grace, which is why she also says that we need to be devoted to the indwelling presence of God. 
you know, that, that you, the God that dwells in our soul because of being in a state of grace. You know, 1959 was the cusp of the second half of the 20th century, which brought with it this unprecedented sexual license and unrelenting attacks on the family and, and frankly, unholy indifference to the state of grace. Our Lady knew these things were coming, and uh, she gave us her message, and we didn't listen. But the Church has approved these apparitions for our day. And I think this is important. You know, uh, we know, of course, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Levine here in uh, California. That's a big devotion. And in every case, it's the same lady. It's always, you know, it's Mary that's appearing uh, to these different visionaries and these, and these different apparitions, um, typically with a very uh, cohesive message that all, they all work together. It all makes sense. But, you know, Our Lady appeared in Portugal. She had, um, or, you know, Our Lady of Good Success in Quito, Ecuador, that I, that I have been promoting for years. Clearly, there, there's a message there for the whole church, but it was specific also to Ecuador. Just as Our Lady of Fatima, uh, a, a big part of her message was specific to Portugal and Our Lady of Guadalupe to, to Mexico, etc. And Our Lady of Good Help and Our Lady of America, it's for the United States. It's for us. And these are recent, 1859 and 1959. This is, this is recent history, and it's about what's going on in the world right now and in this country right now. You know, Our Lady came to tell us about imitating her purity and, and, and saying the rosary and, and catechizing ourselves, and we did not listen. But we've got that, these uh, apparitions. We have public devotion to Our Lady of Good Help, which is appropriate because catechesis is a public act. And then we have the private devotion to Our Lady of America, which is appropriate because purity and chastity and remaining in a state of grace are primarily personal pursuits. But of course, they have an undeniable social impact. Now is the time to embrace your faith. Our Lady has come to tell us that we need to emphasize in our lives uh, to live our faith and to keep our faith, you know, what we need to emphasize in our lives. So I, I find it wonderfully appropriate that Pope Francis has dedicated 2022 to the Mother of God because she is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. Those, those are the words of Bernard of Clairvaux, who also said, with her support, you will never fail. Beneath her protection, you will never fear. Under her guidance, you will never tire. And with her help, you will reach your heavenly goal. Amen. And that is no nonsense. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. Great to have you with us. Next week, we're going to start talking about how traditional Catholics need to embrace the Second Vatican Council and what it's going to mean for the Church. Until then, thank you so much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.